All right. How's everybody doing? Uh, yeah, it's good to see everybody. Welcome to Tomoka Christian Church. Uh, big hello to everybody who's watching online. We're so grateful that you guys are a part of our service. How many of you are excited today? You don't, you don't even know what you're excited about. 18 more Sundays till the NFL starts. Woo! Come on, man. I'm excited. Turn to Acts 12. If you got your Bibles, we're going to continue in our series called Scattered. How many of you here last week and heard Pastor Joe preach on Acts chapter 10? What an amazing sermon, right? Uh, just a reminder that, you know, one of the, the, you know, how do you get around it? But God shows no favoritism. Amen. And those who follow God, who love God, show no favoritism. All right? I mean, listen, we got to, we got to, we got to be honest about what's going on around us. And we've got to begin to act in a manner that reflects a God who shows no favoritism. Right? Doesn't matter where we come from. Doesn't matter what we look like. Right? We've got to learn that God and his word and ultimately the gospel is for who? Everybody, man. We've got to do a better job in regard to that. But we move forward in Acts chapter 12 uh, tonight in our uh, in our study of the story of the Acts of the Apostles. Lots took place in chapter 11, right? Ultimately, what you find in chapter 11 is the church begins to look like a God who shows no favoritism. All of a sudden in Antioch, you find a group of people who are together, whether Jews or Gentiles, and they're acting in accordance with the gospel and in accordance with the way that God acts, which is there's no barrier between a Jew and a Gentile once you come to faith in Christ. Amen? Right? The author, Luke, describes that they were first called Christians in Antioch. And the one thing that was different in Antioch was Jews and Gentiles had no barrier between them, no social stigma. Right? No racial discord. They were acting in accordance with the gospel that breaks all of those barriers down. But things get ugly in chapter 12. Right? Things began to turn a little bit ugly in chapter 12. Here's what the first four verses say of Acts chapter 12 verse 4. It was about this time that King Herod... Now, King Herod is a name you might be familiar with. Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was... Just born, Herod the Great's the one that ordered the murder of every male child under two in his attempts to find Jesus. This Herod here is his grandson, right? Do a little research. The Herod family, the Herodias family, absolutely messed up, evil group of people. And King Herod here arrested some who belonged to the church. Intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's all it's mentioned. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, you'll see that James, along with John, were one of the first four that were called into service with Jesus. They sacrificed everything to follow him. And his entire epitaph for following Jesus summed up in one verse, Herod had him put to death. That was it. That's all it was. When Herod saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened, Peter's arrest, during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the ceremony that lasted a week after Passover. 
After arresting Peter, they put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. All of a sudden, in Jerusalem, you've got a man in power. And tell me this doesn't resonate with where you think our country's headed. And where most of the world has been long before we're getting there. You've got a man in power in King Herod Agrippa I who recognized that politically he was served best by making sure the Jews were happy. And guess who he was willing to serve up for harassment and persecution for his own political gains? Herod. Anybody see anything similar to what potentially might be happening to the church in 2022? People who see a political advantage to persecuting, harassing, causing problems for those who want to follow Jesus. Anybody see that? It's happened all over the globe. It's one of the greatest fears, right? If that's the word, it's one of the greatest concerns the church or people within the church at times have is that we've seen the political climate change so rapidly within the last few years that the question isn't when will government began to take an active persecution role of the church. It's not if, it's when. Most people see that as an inevitable reality to what's taking place. Now, that's not for everybody in here. Not everybody sees that. But there are people who have a legitimate concern about that. And listen, there's enough that you can read that could give you that kind of pause. Herod was so willing to do whatever it took to be accepted, to be politically advanced, that he was willing. Listen, he arrested James. He had him killed. And guess what? The Jews went, we love this guy. This was a Roman, right? A Roman leader who was there overseeing basically the run of Jerusalem, right? And Israel. And the Jews went, we love this guy. And Herod saw that it pleased him. And he went, if one is good then two's got to be better. So he has Peter arrested. And he has every intention of doing to Peter what he did to James, and that's kill him. Because if killing James got the Jews to be backing him politically, imagine what killing Peter will do. Peter, the guy who'd been arrested twice, got out twice, continues to preach and cause trouble. If I can put Peter to death, the Jews are going to love me. And my place politically is a hundred percent secure. Does that make sense to you, church? He had an agenda. And so he takes advantage of this agenda. Now what follows in the next several verses is the narrative that plays out based upon that political backdrop, right? What happens in that is something that you and I can learn from. The problem is it's not everything isn't what it always seems to be, right? I don't know if you know this, but Joe and I have been friends for almost 40 years. It just makes us old, right? And you've heard Joe talk about the fact that there was a time where Joe wasn't the the pristine, proper rule follower that he is today, right? There was a time where Joe was, was, he was into some trouble, right? And he, and he shared with me the, the moment that his life flashed before his eyes that sort of got him back on the straight and narrow. He was, he was a troublemaker kid, right? And he broke into this person's house intending to take something. And he got into the house and he got to looking around and all of a sudden he heard this voice say, Jesus is watching you. 
And he paused. And listen, it was a small town. Troy was a small town. And he paused and his heart rate got up. And he, he went, I've got to be hearing things. And so he went on looking for what he, what he thought was in this home. And he heard it again. Jesus is watching you. And this time he was a little bit freaked out. Because he knew it wasn't in his head. He knew he had heard it. And he got to looking around and he turned his flashlight on. And sure enough, he noticed in a corner a parrot sitting in a cage. And he looked at the parrot. He looked at the parrot and he said to the parrot, did you say that? And the parrot said, yes, I did. Joe knew that there were such things as talking parrots or parakeets. And so he asked the question, what in the world are you talking about? Who are you? And the parrot looked at him and said, my name is Moses. I was just trying to warn you. Joe looked at the parrot and said, Moses, what kind of name is that? Who names a parrot Moses? And the parrot looked at Joe and said, I don't know. I guess the same people that named the Rottweiler Jesus. (laughs) Now I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know why any of you ladies decided to come back after Joe mocked you all with Botox on Mother's Day. But that's a better joke than Botox on Mother's Day any day, right? And just so everybody who's online, everybody in here is watching, I hope you know that's just a joke. Joe didn't break into anybody's house, okay? I have to say that because somebody will, will absolutely email go, did that really happen? Things aren't always what they seem to be, Right? So in in this chapter, I want to focus on three responses that you and I see in this chapter and see if we can't learn anything from it. Here's the first response I want to look at. Peter's response. Peter's response. Listen to these verses in verses 6 and 7. Right? So Peter's arrested. Right? He's in a Roman prison. We know that four squads of four soldiers are watching him. And the way it worked was really simple. Peter had a guard chained to his left side. He had a guard chained to his right side. And he had two guards standing guard over the door into the prison. Four men rotated every six hours. Therefore, 16 men were assigned to guard a preacher. Got the picture? So it says this. The night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial. What was going to happen at the trial? Herod was going to do what to Peter? He was going to execute him. Think Peter knew that? 100%. Peter knew James was dead. He knew what Herod was about. Taking advantage of the situation for his political expediency. It says the night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial. Everybody online, everybody in here, read this last line with me. Peter was. (laughs) So the night before Peter's execution, he's asleep. Now, it doesn't take a lot of searching to find out that Peter, Peter wasn't always adverse to sleeping in difficult situations. If you go to Matthew 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration, where Elijah and Moses transfigured in front of Jesus, you'll find, you'll find that Matthew writes specifically, and Peter was sleeping. Never had any problem with insomnia, right? Go to the garden, go to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus took Peter and James and John and said, hey, come and pray with me. The night before Jesus was arrested and he was crucified, he took Peter and when Jesus 
came back from praying, guess what? They found Peter asleep. So listen, Peter's not adverse to sleeping in difficult circumstances. But this circumstance was different. This was Peter's circumstance. He was arrested, chained between two Roman guards, okay, with two other guards watching him and 12 more men set the cycle through. And the events that would take place the next day was he was to be executed. And in the middle of all that, the writer Luke says Peter was sleeping. Now let's think about that for a minute. How are you when you're dealing with anxiety? You know, we are the kind of people that are like, how are you doing? Oh, I didn't sleep all night. I was up all night. I am just worried sick. And we pace the floor, right? And the minute anything seems to be un, unequal or imbalanced, we tend to go into hyper panic mode, right? And we fret and we worry and we're anxious and we don't sleep and we don't eat. Because what is it we say to people all the time that are going through difficult times? Listen, you just need to rest. You need to get some sleep. You need to eat something. You know you're going to need your strength. And yet, how many of us are the kind of people that when we're going through some difficult season, instead of having the peace of mind and the trust to sleep and to rest, we let our lives be identified by panic. Does that, does that relate to any of you in here? Listen, it's part of it. Listen to these scriptures, right? I want to read some scriptures to you. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and 25. Matthew chapter 6, that's Acts 12. Go to Matthew chapter 6 there and verse 25. It says, therefore I tell you, do not about what? Don't worry about your life. Don't fret. Don't be anxious about your life, about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body. What you're going to wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Right? It's a complicated thing for human beings to not worry. Is it not? Yes or no? Yeah, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand or even say anything, but how many of you have a situation in your life right now or that you've gone through one or you're anticipating one to come where you know there's a possibility you're going to worry, right? Peter was asleep. He was asleep. And he wasn't worried about losing his job. He wasn't worried about losing his head. And yet somehow he found the peace of mind to sleep. Listen to what... These verses tell us about how we should approach these situations. Isaiah 41.10 says this. So don't fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How about this one in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The prophet says the Lord is good. A refuge in times of what? Trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And then Psalm 18 and verse 2 says this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I what? Take refuge. Listen, I would suggest to all of us, right? All of us online, all of us in this room. Listen, our lives at times feel like they're set on sinking and shifting sand. There are legitimate things in your lives right now that if you looked at from a human perspective, you could allow yourself to worry. But scripture tells us 
God is our refuge. He is our rock. He is our strength. He is one who will care for us in those seasons. Peter was asleep between two guards when his life was on the line to be taken the next day. I want to be the kind of person that has that kind of trust in God. I want to be the kind of person that in my faith and in my trust in God, I can learn to lean on God. And let me just throw this out for you. If you go to the gospel of John, there's, listen, the one thing I love about the gospels is you get a group of pic, you get a picture of a group of teenage boys. These were teenage boys. And what you see within these teenage boys is something you see within teenage boys all the time. All kinds of competition. I mean, John even writes about the race to the tomb, all right? These were kids who, who found that competition. And there was always, well, what about that person? What about this person? I mean, John and James's mom went to Jesus and said, hey, can you get to heaven? Can they sit at your right hand and left hand? We think millennial parents are bad or helicopter parents. She went to Jesus on their behalf, right? This was their request. If you go to the gospel of John, There's an exchange between Jesus, right, and Peter, where Peter is asking about John. What about him? Right? What about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus tells Peter this. Don't worry about him. But he tells Peter this. He says, right now you gird yourself and you come and go as you please. And Jesus told him, there's going to come a time when you are Old, that someone else will gird you and carry you where you do not want to go. And you say, well, what does that have to do with this moment? I'll tell you what it has to do with this moment. I believe that part of the reason that Peter was able to sleep between two guards when a madman had every intention of killing him the next day was he trusted God's word because he knew he wasn't old yet. This was a few months after that exchange that this took place. Peter was still just a boy. God told him, there's going to come a time when you're old that this is going to happen to you. We have a book full of the promises of God for his children. Amen. It would serve us well to learn those promises. So when you and I are going through these seasons where we are prone to anxiety and stress and not sleeping and not eating and pacing the floor and making everyone around us a nervous wreck, we can learn how to rest and we can learn how to trust because at the end of the day, we know his promises to us. Amen, church? I find it amazing that a man to be executed could sleep, but I find a man who put his complete faith in the promise that Jesus had made to him, right? How about the church's response? The church's response. Listen to Acts chapter 12, verses 5, and then a couple other verses. It says, so Peter was kept in prison. But Everybody say these three words with me. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This word earnestly here, same Greek word used to describe the way Jesus prayed in the garden the night before he was arrested and crucified. And we know that the Bible says Jesus prayed so earnestly, he sweat as if they were drops of blood. That same Greek word is used to describe how much effort and earnestness the church was putting into praying for Peter. Listen to what it says. In verse 12 through 17, when the, so Peter's 
been released, right? We'll see that story. The angel delivers him, right? Now Peter's out on the street, away from the guards, out of the prison. Miracle takes place. Says when Peter, when this had dawned on Peter, so he thought he was in a dream. He thought this wasn't real. When it dawned on him that it was real, right? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John called Mark. We'll see more of him in the Bible. These people, the church had gathered and were what? So they were praying. Who do you assume they were praying for? We almost always assume they're praying for Peter. And what do you think we think they're praying about? Peter's what? His release. Makes sense, right? Does it tell us that, does it? It just says, goes to the house where the church was praying. Listen to this. Peter knocks on the outer entrance, which suggests this is a big compound. This was a rich person, right? Because there's an outer door, an outer courtyard. So he knocks on the outer entrance. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. Because the church was busy what? Praying. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she didn't even open the door and let him in. He has a miraculous escape from prison where he was to be executed. He gets to this house, right, where he obviously knew they would be praying and she doesn't let him in. It says she was overjoyed, ran back without opening the door and she exclaimed to the group of praying Christians. Peter is at the door. Stop. Don't, don't bring the screen up. Now, if you're new to the scriptures or new here or online, Peter's been arrested. He's going to die. He gets miraculously released from prison by an angel. He gets out, shows up where the church is praying and Rhoda goes into the church and says, Peter is at the door. What do you think the church would say? Praise God. Our prayers work. Right? Make sense to you? No. Listen to what it said. You're out of your mind. The church was what? Peter's released, shows up at the door. Rhoda says he's here. And the church says, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, here's what they said. Everybody read this with me. Now, this statement here, it must be his angel. What do you think, what do you think that says about what the church thought had happened to him already? He was dead. They didn't believe it for a second. So my question to you is this. Do you think they were praying for Peter's release? You see, so many commentators make the assumption that Peter, Peter, the church was praying for Peter's release. I don't believe it for a second. Now, let me, I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm going to try to give you some encouragement. All right? So let's go, let's move to the next verse there, Lori. And let's go to Psalm 37. Let me read you a couple of passages about how we, what I think we deal with with prayer. Right? Psalm 37 says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, everybody, and he will what? How many of you love that verse? Man, we love that verse, right? Because we are a people that are about getting what God wants to give us. Amen? Right? Man, I get that verse quoted to me by people all the time. Right? People always say to me, listen, God said he'll give me the desires of my heart. Right? 
But it also says this in Matthew six nineteen. Listen to this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on where moth and rust destroy, he says, and where thieves break in and steal. He says, keep going. Oh, that's, that's the verse. Bring that, take that down, right? We want God to give us the desires of our heart. God wants us to store up treasures where? In heaven. Listen to John 14. This one gets quoted to me as well when I'm talking to people. Jesus said, and I will do whatever you what? Ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. Listen to this one. You may ask me for what? In my name and I will name it, claim it, baby. If you got faith and you pray, God's going to give you what you ask. I get that thrown in my face by people all the time. But scripture also says this, the next verse, father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but be done. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure that there's anything at times more complicated than prayer for the Christian. Because how many of you prayed for something and didn't get it? Come on, man. How many of you prayed for something and didn't get it? Does that frustrate you? Of course it does, because scripture says this, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. And yet how many times in our prayers we've come back empty handed? Frustrating? Absolutely. Church was praying earnestly. I don't know if you've ever prayed earnestly. The Bible's pretty descriptive about what that looks like. It it looks like putting yourself in such a position that your prayers have caused an incredible physical reaction from you. That you are so desperate in your prayers for what you want. And the church was praying for that. And yet somehow, this incredibly godly church that we've read about for 11 chapters... Praise earnestly. We assume for Peter's release. And when he shows up, all of a sudden, these are incredibly unspiritual people. And they think that Rhoda's crazy. Peter's ghost has showed up. Does that make sense to you? No. I don't believe for a second these people were praying for Peter's release. And here's why. Listen to these scriptures in James. James chapter 5. And the prayer offered in what? Will make the sick person well. Again, how many times have we prayed? My mom prayed for my dad who was sick and my dad died. And my mom had a real hard time with her faith after that. It says, and the Lord will raise him up. If that person has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Everybody read this with me. The prayer of a is powerful and effective. How many of you know that your prayers are powerful and effective before God? Twelve of you. (laughs) Scripture tells you that the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and women avails much. And everybody should say what? Amen. But he says this in James 1. But when you ask, we must what? And not, and not doubt. Why? Because the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. 
That man should not think, or that woman should not think, they will receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded and unstable in all that we do. So we've got this promise, the effective, fervent prayer of righteous men and women avail much. And then we've got this admonition. But if you pray, you better believe and have no doubt, because if you doubt, you should expect what? Nothing. So do you believe for a second that this church, in all of its fervency and earnestness, was praying for Peter's release, only to hear that he'd been released and say to Rhoda, you're crazy. We've already assumed he's dead. I'll buy it for a second. I believe this church was praying for something else. I believe this church was praying for Peter's courage to stand up in the face of his certain death. That this church was praying for themselves out of fear of further persecution. I don't believe for a second that all of those commentators, commentators that have pigeonholed this group of people as having an incredible faith to pray earnestly, all of a sudden lost their faith and looked like fools in front of this servant girl when Peter showed up. I believe their prayers were different. And I think there's some things that we can learn about that. Because if you go back to the book of Acts in chapter 4, you'll see this church pray for Peter and John another time. And they prayed specifically when they were in prison for one thing. Make them bold. Make them courageous. You see, we are so geared. And listen, I get it. We are so geared that God is a God who gives us what we ask for. That we have been bullied at some level spiritually. That if you really believe God, you should ask whatever you want in the name of Jesus, and he'll give it to you. And we've got charlatans all over the globe pressing into people to buy that mentality. When in reality, that's not at all what God wants for us. Satan wants that for you. Isn't that what he said to, to Jesus? He said, take a look at all of this. He said, if you simply bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. Satan wants you to have everything you want. You know what God wants? He wants you to give everything that you have. You see, I don't think the church was praying for Peter's release. I think the church was praying for Peter's courage. And I think the church was praying for Peter's strength. And I think the church was praying for their own protection and courage and strength. I think the church already assumed that Herod was going to do or had already done to Peter what he had done to James. I don't think this is a picture of an unfaithful church. I just think this is a picture of a church that understood exactly what to pray for. That they understood that God cared more about his mission than he did about one individual member. James left everything, became an apostle, followed Jesus, and he is given a one-line obituary in the book of Acts. And Herod killed James. Seems a tad bit unflattering for a man that gave everything he had for the gospel. And yet Peter gets spared. How is that fair? I think prayer is a really complicated thing, the way that we approach it. Because we measure prayer and its effectiveness by what God gives us. We measure prayer and its effectiveness as to whether God answers our prayer. 
I don't think that's always what it's for. Listen to these scriptures I want to read to you. Uh, skip the Acts, skip the Acts 12 passage there. Go to Romans 8, 26 and 27. Listen to this. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to what? Keep that right there, Lori. Keep, bring that verse back up. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you had no idea what to pray for? Anybody? Right? Whether it's about you or about your family or about a situation, it happens to all of us. Right? There's lots of times I am absolutely stricken with an, a, a lack of knowledge of what to pray for. The Bible says that the Spirit helps us in those moments when we don't know what we ought to pray for. And what does the Spirit do? Listen to this. It says the Spirit, next verse, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. But And he who searches our hearts, which is God, Jeremiah 17, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit as well. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with what? Listen, I I want to tell you, the church prayed earnestly for Peter. And we want so bad in the Western culture to absolutely connect their prayer with Peter's release. Right? We want to connect those two because we believe that prayer's effectiveness is measured upon results. I don't think prayer's... I don't think prayer's measurement is always based on results. I think prayer's measurement is based upon trusting in the one that we're praying to. Right? Listen, prayer is simply the verbalization of a posture you and I take toward our God. Instead, our posture is often with our hands out and our voices raised and the expectation that Jesus said, if you pray it in my name and you have enough faith, you'll get whatever you want. And how many Christian people are disappointed in that process? Millions and millions and millions. Prayer isn't about a posture of receiving. Prayer is a posture in giving. Giving ourselves to a God in whom we've already learned is our refuge and our rock and our strength in times of trouble. Amen, church? Prayer is the action that you and I take when we have that kind of trust. Instead of taking it to God with the idea that I'm going to get something in return, we take it with the idea that this is the only place to go because he is my rock. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is the one in whom I can trust. That's what we do. And the good news is when we come into it with our own humanity and our lack of words, you don't have to worry. The spirit is already interceding on your behalf because God has searched your heart. He knows what's troubling you. He knows what pain is there. And the spirit who also searches the mind of God puts together communication. Maybe your prayer is just crying. Maybe your prayer is just crying out. Maybe your prayer is silent in the, in the escape of words. But the spirit is at work in the heart of a believer to intercede on your behalf. Are you not encouraged by that church? So when you don't know how to pray for your children or you don't know how to pray for your health or you don't know how to pray for your friends, take heart. As long as your posture is a posture of trust, as long as your disposition is to the rock, my refuge and my strength and my deliverer, listen, the Spirit's going to do His work. And here's the thing. He's going to pray according to your will. He's going to pray according to the will of God. 
You see, if we begin to pray for our own will, that can be a dangerous thing. I mean, how many of you saw the movie Bruce Almighty? Right? I don't recommend it, but I watched it. Just so you wouldn't have to. You're welcome, right? And in it, right, at some point in time, he's given the power, right? Jim Carrey's character is given the power to answer all prayers. And so what does he do? He says what? Yes to what? Every prayer. Guess how many people won the lottery that night? Everybody that prayed for it, which means they took a multi-billion dollar pod and everybody got about six cents. Right? You see, when you and I pray with our will in mind, what would happen if God granted your will and every person in here and every person online and every person a prayer according to their own will? Do you think it would be chaos? It'd be a mess. I mean, Lord, if God answered prayers between a husband and wife based upon those particular wills, things would be a mess. Right? Imagine a God who answered the prayers of your children's wills. Listen, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Right there it is on the screen, Lori, I see it. Bring that next verse up. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray. Continually. Pray continually. Bring that next verse up there in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always what? And not give up. Right? Listen, you and I have to pray. Have to pray. How else does God know that we have a disposition of trust toward our rock and our refuge and our strength? Prayer is our verbalization that we trust you, God. And the Spirit's job is to intercede on our behalf with groans that words cannot express. And listen, nobody telling me that's a prayer language that you and I need to possess. The Spirit does just fine on His own. He knows how to intercede to God on your behalf. He doesn't need your groanings of unintelligible words to get it done. What he needs is for you to verbalize your posture of trust. And even if you don't know always how to pray because you want to pray according to your will, Scripture says the Holy Spirit's going to intercede based upon God's will. And guess what God's will was? God's will was to set Peter free. And so here's the third response really quick. The third response. God's response. Listen to these verses. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, what? Put to death with the sword. Look at verses 8 through 10. The angel shows up to Peter's prison, says to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you, follow me, and the angel told him. He goes on to say, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, right? Peter gets released. James dies. See the difference between the two? James is what? Peter's what? They both had the same job. They followed Jesus. Go down there, Lori, to verse 18 and 19. Look at verses 18 and 19 after Peter gets released. It says this, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what become of Peter. Those guys were asleep too. And when they woke up, Peter was gone. 
And it says, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and guess what he did? He ordered that they be what? Executed. The, the guards... The guards were simply carrying out their orders, sitting in the prison. And now all of a sudden, because God decided to release Peter, these 16 men die. They die. And then listen to this verse in verse 24. The last verse there. Everybody online, everybody in here, read that with me. Word of God continued to increase and spread. There's absolutely no way to read this chapter without recognizing one unavoidable truth. And that is that God is sovereign. James died. Peter lived. God set Peter free. It cost 16 men their lives. Who set Peter free? Come on, say it, church. God set Peter free. Who paid for Peter's release? 16 men died because of that. All of that. Over and over and over again in scripture. This is what you and I are confronted with. Do we trust a God who acts providentially and sovereignly against what we think he should do? I, I, don't, I, I doubt if there's one of you in here or one of you online that haven't experienced that frustration of wondering why God does some of the things he does. Yes or no? Right? We want to bend God to our will. We want God to respond the way we would respond. We want God to act the way God would act. We want God to do things the way God, or way we would do it. And yet, here's what God does. James, you die. Peter, you live. God sends an angel. Peter, you get to escape prison. Meanwhile, you 16 men, you die. Does that make sense to you, church? No. Does it make sense to you why some people get cancer and die and some people get cancer and live? No. Does it make sense to you why some of your children flourish in an environment of love and success and other children who go to bathrooms at a basketball game end up being kidnapped and, and taken into sex trafficking right in our country? Does that make sense to you? Not at all. Millions and millions and millions of things happen all the time forcing us to this one truth. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He's going to act sovereignly. Listen to what Second Peter says that God's sovereign desire is for our world today. Second Peter 3, 8 says this. Do not forget this. How many things? Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. God is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, slowness, he is patient with all of you. Not wanting anyone to what? But everyone to come to what? God has one goal here, and that's to get as many of you home as he possibly can. That's it. And Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 and 29. And we know that in all things, God works for the what? Of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Listen, God's got a plan. He had a plan for James. James's plan was he was going to die at a sword's at a swordsman's hand for simply following Jesus. And God had a plan for Peter. And that plan was for Peter to be released. And that plan that got Peter released cost 16 men their lives. And here's what verse 24 says. And the word of God, it continued to spread. And it continued to be fruitful. Listen, I want you to know something. 
I think it's amazing that Peter was willing to sleep between two guards. But you know what he had? He had God's word and he trusted in that promise. I don't know what you're dealing with. Some of you are so full of anxiety right now because I have talked 13 minutes longer than I should. Right? (laughs) Probably Joe. Probably Joe who's watching. Right? But some of you are so full of anxiety about what's going on in your life. You don't even know how it's possible to sleep between two guards the night before you're supposed to be beheaded. And yet we can because we have a God in whom we can trust. Amen, church. We have a book full of promises that we can trust. Amen, church. And then prayer. Listen, there's so many things about prayer I don't get. But I know this. That when I trust God, I'm going to verbalize to God everything that's on my heart. And what I have to learn to do is to stop coming with God with an expectation that he's always going to give me what I want. Because guess what? There's thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands. I would say upon millions of people asking for their own will to be done. What if God gave everybody their own will? God acts in accordance with his will. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit, when we pray continually, when we pray and never give up, God's Holy Spirit is at work interceding on our behalf to speak words that we can't understand, but he does it in accordance with God's will. Listen, do not quit praying for your family, for your children, for those around you. Don't quit praying. It is the verbalization of a disposition of trust. And at the end of the day, you're going to need that because God is always going to act sovereignly, church. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but God has never come to you and said, hey, what do you think I should do? (laughs) Never happened. He's just not coming down and asking you that question. You don't want to know why? Because God has a plan and he has a purpose. And he's going to work according to that plan and purpose until this thing is done. And there's going to be things that you and I are just never going to understand. That's That's why Isaiah says God's ways and our ways, they're never ever going to be able to be understood by us. But can we trust that God anyway? He says yes. And he uses Jesus as the proof. Because at the end of the day, the only way to live a lower story life and trust in an upper story God is to have something that you can hang on to. And that is Jesus. And so for some of you in here, this is the time of service where you need to know Jesus. Some of you got questions. Some of you, I know the Holy Spirit's been at work in your life piercing your heart and convicting you. It's time for you to step forward and ask those questions. There'll be a group of people up on the right side of the stage. would be glad to help you with that. For some of you online, listen, you've watched long enough. You've listened enough and you know what God is asking of you. It's time for you to push that button and say, I have decided and get those questions answered. But I know this. Acts chapter 12 was put in this book for a reason. And I think there's more to it than you and I always think that there are. But at the end of the day, there's only one word that describes Acts chapter 12, and that's trust. Do you trust him, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... I'm just grateful that we had this time. I'm grateful, Lord, that these people were kind and patient and gracious with that time. My prayer, Father, is again always for your word and your spirit to do its work. There's no life change. There's no transformation unless there's revelation from you. So, God, I pray for that revelation to come to your spirit and to your word and to the hearts of the men and women in this space and online. And, Father, at the end of the day, I know that the only thing that you want from us are to be people that trust you. Help us to learn, Father, to grow in that. And, Father, I pray that you will strengthen us when our faith is weak. In Jesus' name, amen.